Prestige heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome to the podcast today Beverly Gage. Uh, Beverly is a professor of history and American studies at Yale University, and she's also the author of the excellent G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century, which, as you could probably tell from the title, is a biography of former FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. Beverly, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for reading the really long book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was, I, I just have to say before we get into it, like, it doesn't happen often. Like, I'm a historian, I read a lot of books, but like every now and then you you pick up a book and start reading, you're like, goddamn, this is like an, an, an incredible accomplishment. And and this is really one of those books. It is a tour de force. It is going to be read in 50 years. It's an incredible amount of research and writing and analytical thinking. Um, and as you guys know, I don't say that about every book. So I actually strongly recommend you go out and read this one. You'll learn an incredible amount about the, the middle of the 20th century and beyond and the early 20th century. So I really recommend that. And and so why don't we just like go from there? And, and Beverly, what made you want to, you know, live in the world of J. Edgar Hoover? I wrote a biography, and you, you really wind up living with these these people for, for a decade. So maybe you could just start there. What inspired you to write this book? What were the last books on Hoover, and what were they lacking, and what made you want to engage in this project? Yeah, it's a question I asked myself many times over the decade plus that I spent writing it. But, you know, I got the idea for doing this when I was writing my uh, last book, which was a history of kind of anti-capitalist terrorism in the U.S. in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it really focused on this event. There was a bomb attack on Wall Street in 1920. And Hoover was already there as a young man investigating that, not doing a particularly good job of investigating that bombing. Um, but I could see a lot of the ideas in formation. He was just about 24, 25 years old at that point, um, that were going to go on to be so influential in the history of American politics. Um, so I got really interested in him there. And then I began to read the secondary literature and the early biographies on him, uh, most of which were concentrated in the late 80s and early 90s. And they're really good biographies for the most part. But uh, it was clear there were already both new records that had come out and kind of new interpretive frames for figuring out uh, the meaning of, of a figure like Hoover. So who was this guy? Where did he come from? And how does that relate to who he is in the popular imagination? So maybe you could actually talk about the latter first, because one of the interesting things that your book does is that, you know, Hoover is one of the great villains of the of the 20th century. And you're like, if he if he'd stepped down in 1959, we probably wouldn't view him that way. So how is he viewed in the popular culture? And, and what sort of revisionism do you try to do? Because this book is not sympathetic, I would say, to Hoover, you know, in the final analysis, even as it takes him seriously. But I'd love to hear more about that. Well, I think you're right. In our culture, Hoover is this sort of one-dimensional villain, right? I mean, he might be the most hated political figure of the 20th century. 
And that was interesting to me because I thought there was more to say, not only in a scholarly sense, new interpretive frameworks and new records, but that this was a household name and he had this incredibly one-dimensional image. And I thought, you know, there would be probably something more that uh, that could be done with that. One of the most surprising things that I found in my research, and that, as you say, is a big theme of the book, is how popular Hoover actually was during most of his career. And that began to fall apart a little bit in the 60s when he became much more controversial. But up to that moment, he was one of the most popular and best respected public servants in the United States. And I think it helps to explain kind of the greatest fact of his life, which is that he was the director of the FBI for 48 years, starting in 1924 um, and going to 1972. So for political history buffs out there, that is Calvin Coolidge to Richard Nixon. Um, and it's just this amazing swath of time. And I, I didn't think that, you know, just thinking about him as this villain who strong armed people um, was enough of an explanation for that pretty extraordinary run. And we'll get into it soon, but I, what I love about your book, because it dovetails with my own research, is, is examining the afterlives of progressive ideology and sort of the strange pre-World War II constellation of American politics, which has really changed after the war. But we'll talk about that in a second. So maybe we could just start at the beginning. Who was this guy? Where did he come from? And one of the most interesting things that you do in the, I mean, it's filled with insights, but you really focus particularly on the childhood and college years as, as, hyperformative for who he becomes later. So who was he? He was a creature of Washington, D.C., and not just in this long career as FBI director, but from birth and going back generations in his family. So this is really a book about Washington, and it's about Hoover the man, and it's about the government but it's also about the city of Washington, where he lived his whole life. And I think there are a couple of things that are really interesting about Washington in particular. So he was born there in 1895 at a moment when Washington, you know, is kind of small. The federal government uh, isn't doing nearly as much as it's going to be doing in later parts of his career. Uh, but I think that Washington was really formative for Hoover in a couple of ways. One is that he was born into this kind of new progressive world of government service, right? Of professionalism, of nonpartisanship, of kind of science and expertise, and all of these things that we associate with the progressive era. Um, he really became a true believer in them because he lived in Washington. He never voted. He never joined a political party. And so he's almost this, this kind of pure creation of you know, the nonpartisan civil service ethos. And then on the other hand, Washington, during the years that he was growing up, was a deeply conservative Southern town. And so those years were also really important for uh, shaping his ideas about race. The city is actively segregating during those years. And that's a process. It's not just a static thing. Uh, and religion, anti-communism, you can, you can see all of these ideas sort of in formation. And that's really the political puzzle of the book or the kind of political heart of the book 
is that Hoover was, on the one hand, you know, a progressive state builder in a very recognizable sense, and on the other hand, a deep ideological conservative. And we don't tend to think about those things going together all that much, but I think that's how he built the FBI. And you can see all of that kind of coming through in the, in the institutions of his youth. And so that's really um, compelling to me because I think what's so fascinating about someone like Hoover, whose whose career spans the early to the late 20th centuries, is that that's the moment when Americans also start redefining their politics. Um, Bruce Cooklick's recent book on fascism, I think, makes a very interesting point, which is that most Americans, particularly elites, didn't use the left-right political spectrum until World War II. So when Hoover begins his life, he's operating in a politics and a political formation that doesn't make sense to people in 2023 where you could be a progressive era state builder who's obsessed with nonpartisanship and expertise and also incredibly right wing and those things weren't conceived of as intention. And so Hoover almost appears to us as um, a foreign figure because his entire being doesn't really make sense. Um, So just speaking of that, could you maybe talk a little bit about his time in college and how his participation in a fraternity was especially important to shaping who he became as a person. Because as you said, he becomes so crucial, so young, um, that uh, this, this political formation in college is so central. Yeah, I was really fascinated by his college years. And as with many things in the book, it could have been even longer. There's more material out there. Um, but, you know, three things happen during college. Uh, one is that he takes a job at the Library of Congress. So that is his day job. And he's there at a moment when they are really working out the Library of Congress filing system. And so he becomes this sort of information expert at a young age. And that proves to be really important. The second is that he goes to George Washington University right there in D.C. He's living at home. He comes from a middle-class family, doesn't have a lot of money. So he's working by day, going to GW at night. Um, So he is both learning the law. He's going to law school there. And he's surrounded by this environment of other GW students who are almost all doing the same thing, preparing for lives, uh, rising through the government ranks. But the institution that really came to fascinate me and that you were talking about, about his college years, was his fraternity, which was called Kappa Alpha. And I had known that he was involved in Kappa Alpha and that a lot of the first generation of major FBI officials either came out of GW or Kappa Alpha. But as I began to research Kappa Alpha, I was kind of stunned to find that it was uh, a really explicitly Southern fraternity um, had been founded in the aftermath of the Civil War explicitly to carry on the traditions of the White South, the legacy of Robert E. Lee. And by the time Hoover joined it, um, beginning in 1913, it was a, a sort of meeting place for segregationist Southern Democrats. Uh, so it was a site of political power in Washington, and he got to know that that world there. It was a site of, you know, incredible idea formation around uh, race. And some of its most prominent alums were figures like Thomas Dixon, who was the author of The Klansman, which was this, you know, pro-Ku Klux Klan trilogy. Um, I think it was a trilogy. At any rate, it was the book upon which Uh, Birth of a Nation was based. And in fact, Birth of a Nation came out while Hoover was in college as a Kappa Alpha. And so 
you know, knowing how important his ideas about race are going to be down the line, this just seemed to me to be a really critical institution for thinking about that. So was he someone like a Wilsonian Democrat with a hyper progressive, but also a racist streak? Would that be a good way to describe him in the teens? Or is he something different? I think it's not a bad way to describe him. I mean, I think that because, you know, he himself was never part of a party, per se, um, he sort of stood both inside and outside of those actual networks and the kind of actual administrations. And of course, you know, the amazing thing about Hoover is that uh, he's there under so many different administrations, Republicans, Democrats, um, throughout his life. But ideologically, I think it's a pretty good way of characterizing him, uh, that you have both the progressive era faith in expertise and in, you know, ideas around race, religion, personal virtue, uh, personal autonomy, self-discipline, right? All of those things that are going to be so uh, important to him going forward. And 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 this reminds me a lot of Mark Carnes's work on 19th century fraternities and taking it into the 20th century and like the FBI in in um in some way becomes a fraternity uh literally. Uh and why don't we actually now go to that? How does Hoover first get involved in the Bureau of Investigations? What was was investigation or investigations at the time? Was it singular? Uh, it was singular. Okay, singular, sorry. Bureau yeah. of Investigation. Uh and what was this, you know, it was part of the Justice Department, if I recall correctly, and it was not what it becomes. So how does he get involved and what does he do with it, let's say, in the 20s during that first decade of him being there? Yeah, In some ways, it's sort of happenstance that Hoover ends up uh, both in the Justice Department and then in the Bureau. So he went to law school. Uh, and in one of those critical pieces of timing, he happened to graduate from law school in the spring of 1917. And that meant that the U.S. was entering World War One as he was leaving law school. Um, he could have gone into the military, like many, many of his fraternity brothers did. But instead, uh, he moved into another kind of booming area of the government, which was the Justice Department, which had just required, um, sorry, acquired all of these new duties in uh, surveillance and wartime enforcement. Um, and they needed these, these kind of energetic young lawyers. So his point of entry was at the Justice Department. Um, and his first job was German internment and registration, which is something that we tend to forget uh, in, in our World War I stories. Um, and he was so good at that, at processing the paperwork, deciding who seemed to be dangerous and not, that in 1919, he got a promotion to uh, a new institution called the Radical Division, um, which was in the Bureau of Investigation at the Justice Department and then later became the FBI. So the Bureau itself was pretty small at that point. It had been created in 1908, basically because the Justice Department was tired of uh, borrowing investigators from the Treasury Department every time they needed to have, you know, an antitrust investigation. But they had a weird grab bag of duties at that point. They were pretty small. Um, and Hoover's first job with the Bureau is this experiment in uh, sort of peacetime surveillance of left-wing radicals that he takes up in 1919 and 1920, helps to organize the Palmer raids most famously. Um, then he becomes the assistant director in the early 20s and then finally becomes director in 1924. 
So I have a question about state making because this is a theme that runs through your book. So one of my theses on American history, at least in the post-1945 period, is that the American state is made basically totally in crisis. And this in turn shapes modern American liberalism. I'm doing a volume on Cold War liberalism now. How do you think crisis plays into this very early state formation? Because the American state doesn't really become what it becomes until the 30s and the 40s, but this is this proto moment. So what is the role of crisis here in the 20s for Hoover? Well, I think you're right. Uh, In Hoover's case, crisis becomes the engine not only in this early period, but throughout his career. And the fact that he's able to kind of adapt quickly, be the available man, you know, run a tight ship, all of those things means that he can kind of take advantage of these moments of crisis when when they come along. But very early on, uh, there's no question that that is uh, an important theme. So there's the crisis of World War One, which in many ways really is a crisis of administrative capacity, right? That suddenly, um, after several years of debate about whether the U.S. should be in the war, you know, lots of social conflict around that question, uh, in April 1917, the U.S. commits to fighting this gigantic war all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. And as it turns out, you know, actually has no idea how to do this um, and doesn't really have uh, the administrative capacity that it needs. So Hoover, as a young lawyer moving into the Justice Department, is part of, you know, this moment of really experimentation and of new power that is suddenly there. And as a young man in the right place at the right time, you know, he's able to kind of uh, build himself and to help build these state institutions that are, are responding to this. The second moment in those very early years that's really important to him is 1919, which is when he heads over to the Radical Division, which is a brand new effort in, you know, trying to conduct peacetime federal surveillance of revolutionaries and other radicals in the United States. And that is being born out of not only crises at home, I mean, the strike wave, the terrorist bombings, but also this global sense beginning with the Bolsheviks uh, and then all of the events of 1919 in Europe that, you know, a new revolutionary threat is abroad in the, is abroad in the land <laughs> and, uh, and he's going to have to, to deal with it. How would you characterize uh, the FBI in that first decade? Because from um, from what I remember, it's really the 30s that that is is that gets it off the ground. But what was he doing in that first decade? And then maybe we could go into the New Deal and how that's crucial um, for Hoover. And also for people who might not know, the 20s was a decade of Republican hegemony in the executive branch. And does that play in at all to what's going on with him? Hoover came in as weird as it might be for us to think about it. Uh, he came into the director's job as a reformer. Um, he was brought in at the age of 29 to do two things. One was to move the Bureau away from some of the civil liberties and kind of political surveillance crises it had run into, um, especially with the Palmer raids. Now, of course, ironically, he had been really deeply involved in that, um, but he promises, you know, no more and never again. Um, and then there have been a series of corruption scandals during the Harding years that also uh, really shook up the Justice Department. Um, so Hoover came in first as acting director, um, not necessarily going to be there long term, 
um, and promises to uh, recreate the Bureau in some much more streamlined, efficient, non-corruptible, expert-driven kind of manly image. And that's really what he does for most of that first decade that he's there. They do largely, though not entirely, move out of the political surveillance work they had been doing. Um, and they don't really have all that much to do. <laughs> they have auto theft and the Man Act, which is, uh, you know, prostitution, quote unquote, white slavery across state lines and a grab bag of other things. But he's really perfecting the bureaucracy during those years, transforming the bureau into what he wants it to be, which is this kind of shining example of uh, progressive administrative efficiency and also hiring men who are a lot like himself, mainly out of GW, out of Kappa Alpha, out of institutions like that. And that's important because when the 30s comes along, he's got this bureaucracy in place, right? He's already there. He's figured out a lot of things. And that means that he can kind of rise to the challenges of the 30s uh, in a way that a, that a lot of other people um, aren't quite ready to or are just in you know much more experimental phases. So let's talk about the war on crime, which I thought was just such a compelling way to view it. And historiographically, I just love what you do with pushing back this sort of 60s notion into the 30s. So can we talk about the war on crime, how that plays into New Deal state building, and what Hoover does in the 30s that begins to make him one of the most powerful men in the in the country? Yeah, there are a few scholars who have written really good uh works on the war on crime of the 30s, but I think it's a largely overlooked and kind of forgotten part of the New Deal. So FDR, when he came into office, had obviously a huge variety of crises to deal with, but one of them was a real public crisis around uh, the problem of crime, both real and perceived, and particularly kind of uh, new forms of spectacular criminal violence um, that seemed to be playing a, a really important role. Um, and so Roosevelt is very explicit and gets Congress behind him about wanting to increase the power of the federal government to do something about these high-profile criminals like, you know, John Dillinger or Bonnie and Clyde, right, or uh, the the perpetrators of the Kansas City massacre, right? A lot of these famous bank robbery, kidnapping, violent crime episodes. Um, and so that's the moment that he turns to Hoover at the bureau. And in many ways, this is a real transformation for the FBI, which becomes the FBI in 1935, because they hadn't been doing a lot of that kind of um, direct criminal law enforcement and particularly, you know, really facing down violent criminals. So I found it a really fascinating episode, not only situating the FBI within the New Deal, but looking at how these kind of white collar lawyers and accountants are suddenly told in the 30s, you've got to pick up guns, you've got to learn to shoot. And not only do you have to go shoot, you've got to go figure out how to shoot down someone like like John Dillinger. Um, and they do actually pull it off um, in large part. And that's where a lot of Hoover's fame and celebrity comes from. But it, it pretty fundamentally changes the character of what he thought he was going to build. How did Hoover navigate the shift from Republican power to Democrat power? Was that easy for him? 
I think it was a moment of trepidation, certainly. He had been appointed in 1924, as you said, in this age of Republican dominance. Um, and he really fit in quite nicely in that world, particularly in the, in the Herbert Hoover administration. They were not related to each other. Um, but, uh, you know, the kind of ethos of, I don't know, progressive administration with limits. I mean, Hoover fit in very nicely there. So he was pretty nervous in 1933 about what was going to happen. And, you know, he pulled in a lot of his political connections that he had built over time. And then some of it was just sort of happenstance in the sense that um, there were some spectacular crimes that needed to be solved. Uh, Hoover stepped up and he uh, became pretty close with Homer Cummings, who was Roosevelt's attorney general and was technically the one who uh, was going to make that decision about keeping him in office. So what does the FBI's image become in the 30s? Because from what I recall from the book, this is their big moment when they become kind of nationally known and, and they become, you know, a figure in, in American history to the degree where there will be movies and sh- TV shows about them in a few decades. So so what is the popular image of Hoover and the FBI during this 1930s, you know, coming out on the national stage moment? The title of the book comes from exactly that moment. So the book is called G-Man, which stands for Government Man. And that became the nickname for FBI agents in the 1930s. And one of the things that was interesting to me about that um, is that on the one hand, it's just kind of a, you know, a swashbuckling, here comes the G-Man, right? And it's kind of a, a loose term for for this new crime fighting image, but it's also explicitly a term that's about federal power, right? And the idea that federal power and federal government power is now playing this big new role. And that becomes really important to Hoover's image. So first of all, they become, uh, as a whole, and Hoover in particular, um, sort of gun toting, crime-fighting celebrities, right? The classic shot of Hoover in the 30s is Hoover holding a Tommy gun, looking into the camera, usually with, you know, a couple of movie stars on either side of him doing that as well. Um, But this story about federal power and the idea that he's representing this new form of federal power is really important to how people talk about him. Um, And then he went on to really sell this image that they were these kind of shining knights of the federal government out to avenge America against its worst criminals. Um, that was a product of um, a really important development in, in the 30s, which is Hoover's public relations wing, which becomes very skilled at promoting his myth, the myth of the FBI. And he also, um, in another kind of <laughs> turn of events that he just lucked out from, um, this is the moment that the film codes come in in Hollywood. The film codes say the policeman always has to win. Um, and so Hollywood starts making these films in which the G-men come out victorious. So speaking of G-men, let's talk about uh, Hoover's sexuality. So in the popular culture, he's probably most known, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you dispel this myth as what used to be called a cross-dresser. There's no actual evidence of that. It's kind of like a second or third-hand account from someone with, a, with, a, with an agenda, if I recall. Um, but 
he he does seem to have been homosexual, and in particular, he does seem to have a decades long relationship with a man named Clyde Tolson. Um, so, could we talk about homosociality, homosexuality, and how that played into Hoover's life and his image of what the FBI should be? And and I'm particularly interested in sort of this open secret relationship he had with Tolson, where they would go on dates together uh, in public and be photographed, and that way no one said anything. And so, could we talk a little bit about that? When I first started working on Hoover, I knew that the question of his sexuality was going to be obviously really important to think about. And I thought, oh, but it's going to be so hard because there won't be any sources. As it turned out, in particular, his relationship with Clyde Tolson, who was the number two figure at the FBI, um, but was also Hoover's basically social partner um, for more than 40 years, um, it turns out that that was really a very open social partnership. And as a result, the public were semi-public, semi-private parts of their lives. I was able to relate in a lot of detail. They're in the gossip columns, um, their travel schedules, right? Uh, their nights out together at nightclubs in New York, their vacations in California, all of that was incredibly um, easy to document. And the fact that this was a widely respected social partnership, right? There they are, double dating with Dick and Pat Nixon, right? Um, in the Washington scene, the New York scene, the Florida scene, the LA scene, all of these places that they spent their time, they were a couple and, and really treated as such. The parts that were harder to access were, of course, what this really meant to them. First of all, whether or not this was a sexual relationship, which I just don't know. Um, we just don't have access to that. I mean, most biographers don't know that about their subjects in any great detail, um, but uh, we just don't know that. It's clear neither one of them ever had a really serious relationship with a woman. Um, and as I said, they were, they were very tightly bound together, um, socially and interpersonally, but, uh, the sexual piece, we, we just don't know. Um, and then there's the question of how they felt about each other. And there, I would say, you know, we have some really intriguing bits of evidence and, uh, of course, other places where the evidence is frustrating. One of my favorite, um, sources to think about was Hoover's private photo collection. And I reproduced a lot of these photos, although there are many, many more in the book. Um, and that is filled with incredibly intimate vacation photos from mostly the 30s and 40s when he and Tolson are traveling together, right? There they are in their bathrobes or, you know, uh, out on the beach in their bathing suits, but they are, uh, they're really intimate photos. This is clearly, you know, a loving, intimate relationship um, and remains that uh, until really the day that Hoover dies when the honor guard at his funeral folds up the flag on his coffin and, and hands it to Clyde Tolson, you know, as if Tolson were in fact his spouse. How did others view them? Um, when, when, when Dick Nixon is talking about Hoover and Tolson, you know, he was, he was known to use colorful language. W how were they viewed through other, uh, people in their social circle? Were they viewed as basically a homosexual relationship, whether or not we know if they ever literally had sex? I think there was a pretty wide variety in 
what it was that people were willing to articulate. Right? So as a rule, and this seems to have held across the board, um, there was a lot of respect for this relationship, you know, Johnson, Nixon, any of the other political figures or, or their friends, they really treated them as this social partnership. Um, but whether people articulated that this was therefore a gay relationship, a homosexual relationship had some variety. There were rumors um, and there was lots of gossip the whole time, uh, starting primarily in the 30s when Hoover became a celebrity. And he actively used the FBI to try to shut down that gossip, both in the press um, and just, you know, someone said something about it at a dinner party and it got back to the FBI. Hoover would send an agent knocking on that person's door to say, you know, you shouldn't spread such terrible rumors about the most honorable man in America. You know, and then I think there was a lot of, um, you know, there were other frames for understanding this relationship without needing to name it as a homosexual partnership, right? They were bachelors, they were intimate friends, Tolson was Hoover's right-hand man, right? That's a lot of the language that was used at the time. And how does um, homosociality play into Hoover's vision of the ideal G-man and what he was trying to make the FBI into? The FBI agent corps is this really fascinating group of men that is created almost entirely in Hoover's image. So first of all, um, they are all men. Hoover never allowed women to be agents, although women worked in other parts of the bureau as clerks and secretaries and you know, fingerprint experts. Um, they could not be agents. Um, they were all men who had been picked because they had qualities that Hoover wanted. And particularly in his very early years as director, um, when he's able to do this personally, um, he is picking men who are almost just like him. So they're all white. Many of them come out of Kappa Alpha or a similar fraternity. Many of them come out of either GW or Georgetown, um, the DC schools and out of a DC world. Um, some of them come from, from the South, um, but he liked fraternity men. He liked football players. He liked men who came in with the same combination of kind of professionalism and conservatism that he himself represented. And in one of the really fascinating pieces to me about his bureaucratic skills, you know, by a kind of accident of history, his agents were not in the civil service. They weren't subject to civil service rules. And he fought over and over again over the course of his career to keep them out of the civil service, precisely so that he could continue to hire these men who were just like him and who represented what he wanted represented. You know, there's a reason when we think of an FBI agent, right, even today, People know what to picture. It's this tall white guy in a suit. <laughs> and you don't have that image for any other government agency that I can think of. Um, and that is the product of Hoover's very determined vision, the way he picked his agents, and then this intense and very insular culture that he uh, produced at the FBI um, and the bonds that then developed between this core of, of like-minded men. Beverly, I, one of the most interesting 
stories of the 20th century domestically to me in the U.S. is the rise of the the Christian right, the emergence of the Christian right and its rise to really political dominance by the end of the century. And uh, so I'm curious if we look as we're looking at Hoover uh, in the firmament of sort of conservatism as it developed over the course of the 20th century, uh, what can we say about his relationship with religion, both on a personal level uh, at, but but also on a kind of professional level or, or ideological level in terms of the the position he pl- he he should occupy as we tell the in that story in the story of kind of the Christian rights emergence. That's a great theme. So you know, I think one of the things that ended up being really interesting to me about Hoover is that he wasn't just this kind of national security bureaucrat. I mean, he was a national security bureaucrat, but he was also this incredibly powerful cultural figure who was, you know, constantly kind of giving lectures and uh, having articles and books ghostwritten about what he thought about the world, how he thought people should behave, um, and what he liked to call the American way of life. And religion was really, really central to that piece of his story. He was pretty serious uh, growing up as a Presbyterian um, he was, he taught Bible school. He had a minister who was a very close mentor, uh, when he was a teenager and in many ways was kind of a surrogate father because his own father was struggling with depression and mental illness. So he has these kind of deep roots in the church. But, uh, like many people, it's really in the forties, fifties that he begins to articulate and express those ideas much more publicly, right? It's a moment of big public religiosity. And he does that in a couple of ways. So one is he's constantly telling Americans kind of moralizing stories and offering moral instruction, send your children to Sunday school, right? This is how mothers should behave and fathers should behave. Um, and his religious themes were really central there. I think even bigger uh, was his, the ways in which he articulated the struggle against communism, which is basically the grand ideological struggle of his life. You know, not, again, just as a kind of national security matter, the Soviets are spying on us, but as this mass existential threat uh, between and a, and a real struggle between atheism and uh, Christianity, or what he ultimately came to say was, you know, Judeo Christianity, and a lot of the ideas and themes that he's articulating during those years um, become really important in evangelical circles, uh, and he, particularly in the fifties, is uh, is is working with the Eisenhower administration around these themes, but also, you know, making it an important part of his public image. The more I learn about this period, it really does seem like anti-communism was a conservative thing that was embraced by liberals in the 40s um, as, as time went on. And it's interesting if you could imagine a world where, where you know, a Henry Wallace was vice president, what would have happened to, to that sort of articulation. Um, but let's get back to the chronological story. And, and can we talk a little bit about the FBI in World War II? Because Hoover makes some unexpected choices, particularly given his, um, the, the role he plays in the American imagination. World War II was another part of his career that I think had been relatively understudied, right? We know a lot about the Red Scare. We know a lot about John Dillinger. We know a lot about um, all of the um, scandals and excesses of the 1960s. Um, but the war 
had kind of dropped out of that story a little bit. And it turned out to be really fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. One is that it is the moment that the FBI kind of gets licensed from Franklin Roosevelt, first secretly and then publicly, to move back into domestic intelligence, right? And they build up a massive domestic intelligence apparatus that in this case stays well beyond the war. That in turn produces a huge expansion of the Bureau. So the Bureau basically quadruples in size during the war, right? I mean, like every other part of the American state, uh, it has this major expansion and then stays bigger after the war. Uh, and then the last thing that was really interesting was that if there were ever a moment when you might you know, call Hoover uh, a liberal or a Cold War liberal. This is really the moment. Um, and that's partly because he's following certain political trends. He's in the Roosevelt administration, but he does some really interesting things. He launches um, pretty aggressive anti-lynching investigations for the first time in the 40s, beginning with the war and then right after. He opposes Japanese mass internment which is a really unusual position for a federal official to take. And then he, in the 1940s, he's spending a lot of time, not in wholly peaceful relationships, but in relationship with uh, the ACLU, the NAACP, right? He's working with uh, a lot of organizations that we think of as being, you know, really at odds with the FBI. Um, and they were relationships with some tension in them, uh, but they were working together during the war. So we talked about Hoover's religiosity. It seems like now would be a good time to talk about his racism. And we we, we, we talked about a little bit in terms of Kappa Alpha, but how does that move across his career in sort of these tension-filled, unexpected ways? I think it's a deep part of how he thinks about the world. And, you know, if the Bureau is a pretty straightforward expression of Hoover's priorities in a lot of ways, you know, he even when he was under a lot of pressure in the 40s and the 60s to hire black agents, you know, basically refuses to do so and certainly doesn't do it in any more than a, a handful of cases. Um, and so, you know, from Kappa Alpha onward, simply by being a citizen of Washington, D.C., which we should remember was a segregated city for almost all of the time uh, that he was coming of age. And then for most of his career, right, that was our capital city was formally segregated. You know, he has a, a kind of basic outlook on the world that uh, has a particular racial hierarchy attached to it. There are some moments um, which were surprising in which uh, he seems to be acting against what we would understand to be kind of longstanding and pretty deep-seated racism. Uh, one is this anti-lynching campaign in the 40s. Um, another is when he goes after the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist groups in the 60s pretty aggressively. And usually he was willing to do that um, when those groups were either acting violently, acting as vigilantes, which he really, really didn't like <laughs> as a law enforcement official, or when they were kind of thumbing their noses at federal power. And he thought that the legitimacy of federal power was at stake. So a lot of that uh, would have taken place you know, in the American South, uh, the kind of resistance of the white South. Um, he might have had some sympathy for Southern values, writ large, white Southern values, uh, but he did not like it 
um, when people uh, on the right were were moving in either a vigilante or or a kind of anti-federal direction. It's 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 surprising and interesting, and this is where I think the place of D.C. comes um, really into into focus. Is that he's not a states' rights guy by any stretch of the imagination. He's a federal guy, um, partially because he grew up in the, in this city, and that I think again what makes him sort of atavistic and strange to understand today is that he's like a hardcore Southern conservative who's not into states' rights, who's into federal power, which is uh, just something that doesn't really come together today. So, how does Hoover react to the Cold War? Uh, what does he do? You know, he's an anti-communist for decades. Now you have anti-communism become the official policy of the United States starting in 47, if not e- even earlier. What does he do and how does he retool the FBI in light of this new international crusade? This really is the cause of, of Hoover's life, I think. I mean, the, the, that's really fundamental to how he sees the world and is kind of the theme that shapes everything else, whether you're talking about race or religion or national security or, or, or crime even, right? A lot of it is structured um, through his understanding of this, of the great struggle against communism, uh, which he came to as a very young man, as we said, right? In 1919, he actually wrote the first kind of uh, substantive federal briefs on the new communist parties that had formed. In that case, he's trying to argue that they should be subject, uh, their non-citizen members should be subject to deportation. And so when this kind of comes alive again in the 30s, but then especially the 40s, you know, he really commits himself <laughs> to uh, the cause of anti-communism. And what's interesting to me is that he does that on this wide array of levels. He understands it uh, in so many different ways. So one is a pretty straightforward and obvious national security level, right? Concerns about espionage, concerns about sabotage. So the FBI is, you know, uh, working to detect Soviet agents, they're turning people, they have double agents, right? You've got this pure sort of intelligence story. Then you have his concerns about the Communist Party domestically as an institution, right? And its relationships to the Soviet Union, his infiltration of the Communist Party, uh, with lots and lots of informants <laughs> beginning in the, in the, in the thirties, but really expanding, uh, in the forties, uh, during the war itself and afterwards. Um, then you have, uh, this kind of cultural struggle, right? Which is another step. Um, and that cultural struggle is both about, you know, sort of more, uh, broad categories like, uh, like race and religion, but then also has all of these policy implications in which, you know, one of his great concerns are not just communists, but, uh, what he would describe as the liberal or progressive dupes, right? Who aided and abetted them. Um, and so that puts him in, uh, opposition with a kind of extended fellow traveling left who then also come under under his kind of surveillance. And how does he deal with the Eisenhower administration? And maybe we could talk a little bit about COINTELPRO, which is it a revelation? You reveal he told people about this like right at, within a couple of years after it started, which is really interesting because it was always assumed to be this sort of secret thing. And I, from my sense of your book, it's like it's the 50s when the Hoover who becomes the villain really begins to, the villain in the American imagination really begins to take shape. 
I'd say it's in the 50s when uh, the the left really becomes uh, very critical of Hoover, but they're pretty small and pretty marginal, uh, you know, for a lot of the 50s. So that Hoover's public opinion polls in the 50s, when he is kind of at the height of his uh, Red Scare powers, are um, incredibly favorable to Hoover. So he's getting popularity ratings in the 70s percentiles, 80 percentiles up to the 90s. There's one poll that says only 2% of Americans uh, disagree with uh, what J. Edgar Hoover is doing. And some of that actually included liberals and even some so, some leftists. I found a moment where I.F. Stone, this kind of muckraking left-wing journalist, says, you know, as it turns out, J. Edgar Hoover is really the only civil libertarian left in our government. <laughs> Just one of these kind of great moments. And that's largely because he was uh, uh, at least implicitly critical of Joseph McCarthy. Um, he you know, kind of viewed McCarthy as something of a demagogue and a loose cannon. And a lot of people rallied behind Hoover as the more responsible, the more state-based anti-communist. Um, and that included, you know, some liberals who were, who were desperately trying to kind of figure their way through this anti-communist politics. And then we get to COINTELPRO, as you said, which is uh, a really interesting story. So it's most famous and I write a lot about this for the 1960s operations against Martin Luther King and the Black Panthers and the anti-war movement. Um, but it started in the 50s as a disruptive program aimed at the Communist Party. And the logic of COINTELPRO was really that uh, you weren't going to bring court cases. It wasn't even really a surveillance program. It was a disruption program where you were going to, you know, plant false newspaper articles, send threatening letters, send your informants in to kind of disrupt the organization from within. And as you said, it turns out that he was pretty straightforward in talking with the White House to some degree with uh, favored members of Congress about the fact that the FBI was running these disruptive operations. Now, I don't think that he told them a great deal of detail, although in some cases it seems like they did know an awful lot, Lyndon Johnson, for instance. Um, but the, the fact that the FBI is doing this stuff was, uh, seems to have pretty, been pretty open in the upper echelons of government and nobody seemed to really object. So let's talk about the last decade of Hoover's time in power. How does he react to Kennedy? Um, and what does he do vis-a-vis -vis Martin Luther King, which is probably what he's most famous for in left-wing circles today, the, the COINTELPRO against King? And, and how does that relate to the, the rise of the 60s, the long 1960s as a phenomenon? Because my sense was that this was like the real moment in his career where he didn't you know, move with the times in a way. He, he's getting older. He's getting less nimble. He is stuck in his ways and he's not able to really reformulate the FBI to the, the cultural revolution that's taking place in the sixties. I think that's absolutely right. Um, so he has a very fractious relationship with the Kennedy administration. And some of that is around policy questions, but a lot of it is, you know, just a kind of fundamental personality and culture conflict. Kennedy is the first president who is younger than Hoover. The Kennedys aren't particularly respectful of you know, Hoover's many, many serious years in office. So there are a lot of reasons that that conflict 
developed. Interestingly, I don't think that civil rights was really one of the reasons for for that conflict. Right? We tend to forget that the Kennedy administration was actually pretty conservative on civil rights until 1963. And then even in 1963, you know, they're working pretty closely with the FBI, which is coming to them with reports about Martin Luther King's uh, alleged, allegedly communist advisors. Um, I do think that there were a couple of people in King's orbit um, who had much deeper and uh, secret ties to the Communist Party than they were willing to acknowledge publicly. Um, so I don't think, based on the FBI's evidence, uh, that they were entirely wrong about making those allegations. Uh, but that becomes sort of the basis for first a set of wiretaps on those advisors, um, and then with Robert Kennedy's approval, um, a set of wiretaps on King's home and office. Uh, those in turn lead the FBI to uh, be able to figure out where King is going to be going. Um, and they start uh, kind of getting into his hotel rooms ahead of time, planting microphones and recording what's going on in his hotel rooms. Uh, that produces lots of evidence about King's extramarital sex life, which the FBI then begins to try to use uh, to intimidate and discredit him. Um, and a lot of that really reached its darkest moments in, uh, in late 1964, early 1965, when Hoover both publicly denounces King as, quote, the most notorious liar in the country, and then also um, sends King uh, a threatening uh, kind of COINTELPRO style uh, anonymous letter along with the reels of some of these tapes from his hotel room, uh, urging him, uh, King thought, urging him to commit suicide. The FBI uh, officials have since said, you know, or to push him out of public life. Do you give any credence to conspiracy theories around the FBI's involvement in the murder of King um, and anything along those lines? Obviously, there would be no documentation about that, but what do you think about something like that? Was it in his, could he have done something like that? Was that within his sort of remit? Yeah, I think there are, you know, there are theories about the Kennedy assassination. There are theories about the King assassination, to some degree, Robert Kennedy's assassination as well. Um, I don't think there's a lot of uh, evidence to suggest that the FBI was actively involved in any way uh, in in planning the assassinations. You know, as with all complicated investigations, I think you can find limits to uh, what they explored and what they didn't explore, right? There are certainly um, pieces of information that are interesting to get into, um, but no, is the short answer there. Um, and in fact, in the King assassination, you know, I would say Hoover certainly contributed to a public environment where um, the assassination of Martin Luther King was more likely. I would also say that the FBI had very little interest in protecting King and in fact, often actively refused to do that or to pass along threats. Um, but, you know, when the assassination happened, I think they actually precisely for those reasons, felt that their own legitimacy was at stake and actually did a, a pretty massive and very difficult investigation to, to end up where they did. How would you describe Hoover's last few years in office? And, and what do they say about the tenor of his career? 
His last few years in office, so both under under Johnson and then under Nixon, were by far his most controversial years. And they're the years that I think will be most familiar to people today, right? They're years when leftists and liberals in particular become very critical of him, uh, both for his public statements um, about the anti-war movement, the Black Power movement, uh, and then also for uh, what was understood to be these these quite um, extensive and really abusive uh, violations of civil liberties. Some of that evidence did in fact start to come out um, in advance of Hoover's death, and then a lot more came out right after he died through the church committee investigations. Um, you know, and he had had big hopes for the Nixon years because Hoover and Nixon had been very close for a long time before Nixon became president. But there too, you know, Hoover ran into uh, some real conflicts with Nixon. Um, so they were, I think, years of, of decline, uh, years when he became controversial and he probably would have been better off, you know, retiring 10 or 15 years earlier and he would have had a very different reputation. So just as a final question, what should listeners take away from the life and career of J. Edgar Hoover? And what place should he hold in the American imagination? Is it just fine that he's a villain because he did do horrible things, particularly in the last 30, you know, quite, he did horrible things throughout the whole, his whole time. So what should we take away and what role should he play in the U.S. imagination? I think it's fine to leave Hoover as a villain. I, my, my goal was not to uh, redeem J. Edgar Hoover. Um, but I do think in a lot of ways, uh, it's too easy to make him a villain. So what I don't think that he was, was a rogue actor, which is to say that many of the things that he did that have rightly been you know, the subject of, uh, of criticism, of outrage, um, in fact, were things that both in Washington itself, um, and then in the country at large were pretty widely supported during his lifetime. And so I think only to leave Hoover as a villain is first to miss the part of his story that is about the rise of the administrative state, the national security state, right, and the ways in which he was deeply embedded in that and representative of a lot of trends um, in that story, and then is to ignore his popularity. And to me, the statistic that really gets at that is, you know, at the height of his showdown with Martin Luther King in 1964. Hoover has denounced King as a notorious liar. Um, King has come back and been mildly critical of the, uh, of the FBI. They have sat down. They kind of had a, a meeting where they ostensibly made up. But of course, Hoover's very outspoken in his criticism of uh, King and the civil rights movement from that moment on. But in the aftermath of that showdown, you know, a public opinion poll is done. It showed that 50% of Americans sided with Hoover, 16% sided with King, and then the others just didn't know what they thought about the whole situation. So in our world, right, King and Hoover obviously occupy very different positions, and rightly so, but that shouldn't let us, you know, forget how, how widely supported Hoover really was when he was alive, and therefore that he has something important to tell us about our, our country's politics. And when we look at J. Edgar Hoover, we're looking in a mirror. Beverly Gage, thank you so much. Everyone truly check out G-Man. I imagine it's in hardcover and audiobook. 
it's a really fantastic book. If you want to learn about the 20th century, I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for joining us, Beverly. And uh, we hope to have you back again soon. Thanks. Thanks.